2: Hello, I'm Alan Davis. Welcome to Seven Pillars. This is the podcast in which we have a special guest in each episode who tells us about the seven things in his or her life that mean the most. We ask them to pick cultural things or events or places or special memories or foods, the seven pillars of their life that they perhaps return to if you ask them what do they really like, what's really important to them. And my guest in this episode is Ramesh Ranganathan. Hello, Ramesh. Hello, Alan. How are you? It's fantastic to have Romish here. Uh, Romish is well. I asked Romish before we started recording which of your extensive output would you like me to mention in the intro because we could take up the whole hour. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's got a book out at the moment called "As Good as It Gets," which is about Jack Nicholson. I think is that right?
0: Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah and so, uh, uh, <laughs> not a lot of people know that about me. that I'm obsessed with him
2: obsessed with him and also he's obsessed with you and that's
0: yeah he's done a book called Asian Provocateur I think
2: <laughs> uh, Asian Provocateur was a fantastic BBC series that it did uh, when you travelled to Sri Lanka and uh, really wonderful was I was in the rare position I knew you uh, quite well by then we've worked together a couple of times Mm. Of actually genuinely be able to contact a friend and, and and compliment them on their work, which is a rare thing. Normally, yes. when you normally you're trying to avoid people, you know, when they doing their work. The <laughs> Ranga Nation yeah. keeps going strong, and uh, you seem to be on m- most channels at any time in the evening. I remember saying to you a few years ago, "How's it going?" You must be exhausted. Are you all right? And uh, you said to me, "Look, I just don't want to be that guy," you know. <laughs> He's done all the time, and I said to you, "That ship has sailed, my friend."
0: <laughs> that ship sailed, and you're that on ship, it, broadcasting that from it.
2: That we're all we're all at the shore, <laughs> waiting for that ship to go down. But in fact, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, look, let's crack on. Let's get on with your your seven pillars. Your film choice will start with. What we say to our guests is it doesn't have to be the best film you've ever seen or the most recent. or you're not, It's not something where you're trying to impress anybody. It's just something a film that means something to you for whatever reason. It's up to you. And your choice is Back to the Future.
0: Yeah, I know it's sort of quite a lowbrow. I've got a problem with being quite a lowbrow generally, actually. There's a mate of mine that was um, that was running a film festival. And he said, I'd love you to curate a selection of films for me. And I chose a selection of films, and I said, this is what I might do. And then I, he, he deselected me from the festival. <laughs>
2: Can you give us a couple of your choices that you think, think I, might contribute
0: I, I think I might have said, I think I said Akira, maybe Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind I had. That's a great uh, film. Yeah, that's what I thought. Maybe Back to the Future is in there, I don't know. But he just said, the worst thing about it was I was slightly trying to be more highbrow than usual when I sent the list because I thought it was a film festival, but he said, I, I don't think, he said, you've got kind of a teenager's movies taste. Um, but I love Back to the Future was, I've watched it so many times. There's something about the, the age that Marty McFly is, because obviously this, he, you know, he's at high school. I found something I found something very into, like, exciting about American high schools and that kind of time of your life. And I remember being a kid that didn't really fit in. And so Marty McFly, to me, was so cool, was so... Everything about him was cool. He could play the guitar. He skateboarded, all of that. I really liked that. Had a girlfriend, all of those things. And then him traveling back to 1955 and him carrying that kind of 1985 coolness back to 1955, I found like so intoxicating. I think I just fell in love with Marty McFly as a person. You know, there's a bit in the film where he's running away from Biff Tannen um, from the diner. And he, it, there's this like sort of, crate on wheels at this kid's wheeling past and he and he he says oh, I, I need to borrow this and breaks the crate off the top and turns that into a skateboard a makeshift skateboard and and uses trucks to sort of drag him i just was like buzzing when i saw that I was like, oh my god he's so cool i was like his, you know when his mum's outside the diner just going oh my god he's dreamy that's what i was like watching the film it was incredible but the, the climax for me is when he um he's at the prom and the, the band that are playing there, the the guitar player gets injured. Because of him, he's getting him out of the boot. Biff Tannen, I think he gets locked in the boot of the car, Marty. He gets broken out of the boot of the car. In the process of doing that, the guitar player cuts his hand. And so Marty McFly steps in to play Johnny Be Good.
2: And he has to step in, right? Because he has... If the band don't play...
0: Yes. Then his parents... Won't get together. Yeah. yeah. And so he will cease to exist. So there's all these cool bits where he's looking at the photo of uh, the old family photo and his family members are disappearing. And then he looks at his hand, he holds his hand in front of his face and that starts to fade away. And so he plays, so he is in an existential, it's a situation where if he doesn't play Johnny B. Good, he will no longer exist. To me, he's so cool. Such an incredible, incredible bit of him playing this music. And then he gets carried away at the end of it and starts doing this kind of Van Halen uh, riff and loses the crowd. But it's absolutely amazing. I've watched that film so many times.
1: in there and finish the dance hey man look at marvin's hand he can't play with his hand like that and we can't play without him. yeah well look marvin marvin you gotta play
3: see that's where they kiss for the first time on the dance floor and if there's no music they can't dance if they can't dance they can't kiss if they can't kiss they can't fall in love and i'm history
2: hey man the dance is over unless uh, you know somebody else that can play the guitar
3: all right guys uh, listen this is blues riff and b watch me for the changes and try and keep up okay <laughs>
0: There's lots of controversy about it. For example, the guy that plays his dad. How well do you know this film, Alan? Do you know it quite Pretty well? Pretty
2: well. I've seen it a few times. In fact, I do remember years ago, John Gordillo and Simon Clayton are good friends of mine from the comedy circuit and yeah. and we we decided uh, back to Future 3 came out. Yeah. And we decided we would do all three in a day. Right. So we watched uh, 1 and 2 on VHS and then went to 3. And actually, if you do that, there are so many references across the three yeah. films, so many things that you can find. The complexity of this work is really, it's, it's really impressive. The comic performances are brilliant. The energy and drive of the scripts, the sheer entertainment value of these films is kind of unrivaled, really.
0: Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's one of my favourite trilogies. Although, did you, like, did you like three?
2: Yeah, we liked three, but at that point... We were so immersed in this world that they could have done anything. Yeah,
0: I know. (laughs) Even Doc Brown on the flying train pulling, even that, you'd buy that. You'd have that. That's how much you're in love with the franchise. Uh, But but one of the things was the guy that played his dad really disagreed with, because, you know, when he comes back to 1985, Biff Tannen's cleaning their car. His dad's an author. His mom's doing very well. And the point that was made was that what this was supposed to signify was life going well and the point that this guy made was that that's actually a very materialistic way of looking at things you know he, he kind of disagreed with that and so brought it up with the director and as a result was was no longer he, he was kicked out of the film he wasn't in any of the sequels so
2: oh i didn't realize that
0: yeah so he was he was really unhappy with that depiction of what is an idyllic 1985 existence he just felt like it was very superficial and then of course there's the other thing about Michael J Fox not being the original Marty McFly
2: oh who did they want to have uh, it was well they actually
0: started filming with Sylvester Stallone no it wasn't Sylvester <laughs> Stallone I, I can't remember the guy go- let me look this up but they they started shooting and I think they did two weeks and then they were looking at the rushes and they just decided he wasn't playing it comically enough he was playing it kind of with the horror that you, might, <laughs> that you might really react to if you found yourself 30 years in the past. So he was playing it a lot straighter. Eric Stoltz was his name. Oh, okay. So Eric Stoltz was, was the original Marty McFly. And actually, if you look it up on YouTube, you can watch the scene where Marty McFly first arrives in 1955 and walks across the town square to the diner you can see Eric Stoltz's version of that. I mean, I, I I can't notice any real qualitative difference, but apparently he played it a lot straighter, and they weren't having it.
2: So now he meets um, Doc Brown, played yeah. by uh, Christopher Lloyd, uh, who I was one of my comic heroes anyway because of Taxi. I don't know. You're a bit younger than me. So, when this came out in 85, you were what? About seven years old? Yeah, I was seven like years old, yeah. yeah, I was So, you years. probably weren't familiar with him from Taxi. I no, sure? I wasn't. I wasn't. Yeah. And he played this kind of eccentric taxi driver in the film. It's a brilliant sitcom, Taxi. It's an absolutely fantastic sitcom. He is able to create a time machine because he has plutonium, which uh, this is something I forgot. It's been stolen from Libyan terrorists.
0: Yes, yeah, that's right. As he's showing Marty the DeLorean, this time machine, the Libyans just rock up at this car park.
2: And they've got to escape from them, right?
0: Yeah, they're in a minivan, and then one of them's out poking out the top with a rocket launcher.
2: <laughs> it's quite a lot of peril.
0: Yeah, there's loads of Jeopardy in it for, for what's essentially quite a light-hearted film. Then, don't know if yeah. you found this, but when I started to watch things we're going through the phase now of trying to get my kids acquainted with films that my wife and I really like. You suddenly realise the, the, the bits that are definitely unsuitable for children, do you know what I mean, and that is one of them, I think.
2: You it really is do essentially... notice, don't you? It's 35 oh, years old. Yeah. You really do notice when you've got children how things of the kind of cultural mores of the day have changed. This happened to me. I took my boy, my middle child, to see Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Right. And I thought that was a great film. Who Framed Roger Rabbit's hilarious. Bob Hoskins is brilliant. It was such a smash at the time in whenever it was, 92, so I can't remember what year it was. Anyway, we going on to see it. What I'd forgotten about, first of all, uh, Hoskins' character smokes like a chimney throughout the yeah, whole film. Yeah, yeah. And that, <laughs> wouldn't, that wouldn't stand out except that you never see that now. But right. also, he's got a half bottle of scotch in his, in his overcoat pocket and is continually He's a serious alcoholic.
0: Yeah, yeah, and
2: then when they go to see Jessica Rabbit doing her cabaret act in a tight-fitting yeah. dress, all these men are shuffling their chairs forward with their tongues hanging out. Yeah, in a really quite a menacing way. Some, it's the sort of material that you just would not see in a in a, in a, a U or a PG certificate film in twenty twenty for whatever reason. So in the plot of the film. Um, Doc Brown gets shot, doesn't he? And then he has to go back to find him and try and change history, basically.
0: Well, he, it's all very accidental because the Libyans turn up. I think Marty gets, he jumps into the DeLorean to get away from them. And in the process of getting away from them, hits 88 miles per hour. Now, Doc Brown, coincidentally, has put in the date 1955 because that's when he banged his head and first came up with the idea of the flux capacitor. I
2: love the flux capacitor.
0: Yeah, the flux capacitor, which is this three-pronged thing that enables time travel. And then it's sort of this weird diagram. You sort of think, what is... I'm sorry, I know you're allowed a little bit of artistic license with regard to the science of this. Am I expected to believe that this diagram
2: was a breakthrough? It's like a shampoo commercial. Here comes the science bit. Get someone in graphics to do something. (laughs)
1: Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why agency
3: designed Future Formula, a personalized anti aging formula prescribed by a dermatology provider to treat fine lines, wrinkles, dark spots, and more. Agency has clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than over the counter retinol. Future Formula by agency. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W I T H A G E N C Y.com. 495 shipping and handling, subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime.
0: Um, so, yeah, so he runs away from the Libyans and he ends up in 1955 and has to go find Doc because he, he, all he wants to do is get back to 1985. And so basically they, they don't have plutonium that's required in order to power this DeLorean. And Doc Brown says it's, it's a bolt of lightning that you need. And then Marty McFly shows him this newspaper article that talks about this bolt of lightning that hit the clock tower on this date, and so they, d- they build up to trying get, to get him back on that on that date, basically.
2: Uh, well, it creates a very exciting climax. Oh, yeah. Oh, the climax is great, right? It's impressive. I think all three are very good, and it's extremely unusual yeah. to have three films like that that maintain any sort of standard at all. Well, that's brilliant. Uh, back to the Future is a wonderful film, and it's your choice, and it's a good one. Let's move on to the book you've chosen. You've chosen um, a Booker Prize winner. Which one? Life of Pi by Yann Martel. There's lots
0: of reasons why I like this book. The thing that dragged me into that book, first of all, it's a story of a, a young Indian lad who's, whose parents run a zoo in Pondicherry in India, and they want to move the zoo abroad. They've got to leave. So they load all of the animals onto a ship, and during the, the, the crossing, the ship uh, sinks, and this boy, Pai Patel, finds himself trapped on a boat, on a lifeboat, with a tiger. Um, and so has to survive well, I mean it doesn 't have to survive; he could choose to just be eaten by the tiger immediately, I guess, but it 's a story of him uh, his ongoing sort of journey across the water with this tiger and I fell in love with this story as soon as I read it i mean first of all, Pi Patel, the actual character his his sort of character traits are very similar to mine i mean the food he talks about is a food that I remember eating growing up, and that my mum made for me so obviously there 's a there's a connection there but it's also before they get onto the ship they talk about his life in india and his life at school and when he was growing up and one of the things that he's really interested in is he's interested in religion without being tied to any religion in particular and so he's sort of very interested in in spirituality in general which is kind of sets you up for for what happens later on in the book but i found all of that really interesting that kind of idea of being interested in religion but not being not being particularly religious, like I said, although he is religious in the, in the book. And then, of course, the, the, the actual story of him being on the boat with the tiger is so gripping. It's a very matter-of-fact writing style. The way that Piper tells voice is very kind of straight down the line, but in that way, it's actually very charming and endearing and, and, and it sort of really does draw you in. At the very end of it, you know, he survives, spoiler alert. And then, without going too much into details, there is an ending that kind of, throws into doubt the, his whole version of events. And it's kind of, I guess, left up to your interpretation as to what really happened.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I really enjoyed that as well. I, I, and so I remember being on holiday uh, with a girl I was seeing at the time and I was reading that book. And as I finished that book and immediately started re- reading it again because I was so into it. Now that's either because the book was incredible or a damning indictment of the, the time I was having with that girl. <laughs> But I just, I, I've read it many times since. But um, yeah, I just absolutely loved it. They made a film of it, which was also good. But I, I you know, I, I've got no problems with the film. But, it, you know, it didn't really, it, people always say this, and it doesn't match up. It's
2: very difficult when you, lo- when you love a book, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. You really embrace someone else's what someone else has seen and makes the picture. You've got your own pictures in your head.
0: Right? Yeah, it was a weird one because I I, I went with my wife. My wife I knew that I loved the book. We went to watch the film. And I came out and I was like, yeah, that was fine. And, she, and I couldn't put my finger on, there was nothing wrong with it. It just, uh, you know, is exactly as you said, really, is that I'm was so i so in love with the book that it would have been very difficult for any film really to match up. I just couldn't, you know, it's just that thing of you form such a relationship with the book, nothing really can match
2: up. Yeah, that's it. Now, do you think your attraction to the book is, in, is, is part of the... Immigration story: A part of this, they had to leave India at a time when there was an the emergency was on. Was, there was yeah. a re, there was a reason they had to pack up and go. They were fleeing, effectively, weren't they? Yeah. When did your parents make the move to the to the UK?
0: So my mum and dad came to England in seventy five, I think it was.
2: So that's pretty much exactly the same.
0: Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, I really did relate to him, the kid, even though he's brought up in in Indian. I was brought up in Crawley you know, my mum was and is very religious and you sort of have that, you know, I've got that Hinduism in my background okay. and the cultural thing and the I grew up eating the food and stuff like that. So I, I do think there's, it's the first time, I think it's probably... The most I've related to a to a character I was reading about, really. I think that's pro- that's probably part of it.
2: He's a Tamil. Yes. Boy isn't he? Is that the same as your background?
0: Yeah, yeah, we're Tamils
2: as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know where Pondicherry is. Is that down the bottom of India? Yeah, I think so. So there's so some. There's quite a lot of cultural crossover for you and. Yeah. Um, no zoos in your childhood. But...
0: No, no. In fact, I got into a bit of trouble recently because I, a couple of years ago, I I went to um. I went to, I went on a holiday, we went on a holiday to Portugal. We went to this water park place that had dolphins and stuff. And then I, I wrote an article about how depressed I thought the penguins looked there and how it sort of made me think about zoos in general. Because we were just sort of walking around and I remember the kids were being very excited about seeing these animals and I was walking around just sort of thought, they just all look like, they look so miserable. But then, you, you know, it's so naive. I don't know what, I don't know what a happy animal looks like compared to a miserable one. I don't know what penguins do when they're related. so it was, it was sort of a naive starting position really so I, I wrote an article about it and got into a lot of trouble because I'd sort of gone very anti-zoo in this article but there apparently there are there are very valid reasons to have zoos and I was being very naive but I mean I, I still wouldn't accept the argument those penguins are happy they looked utterly miserable um so so anyway look, look, the, the the short answer to your question I'll no, no zoos in my background no.
2: Well, I'm fascinated by this. I don't, it's not a book that I've read. I'm intrigued by it. I've seen some of the clips of the uh, the film. Yeah. But it was it became having been rejected by several publishers in the UK. It was published in Canada, and became an absolutely extraordinary worldwide phenomenon. It sold over ten million copies. I'm sure you're approaching that number for as good as it gets. But you're still another. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in 2010. Um, when he was president of the United States, Barack Obama, I'm reading this as I do everything on this show from Wikipedia, uh, wrote a letter to Jan Martel describing Life of Pi as an elegant proof of God and the power of storytelling, which is a strange
0: phrase. but Proof of God is an interesting one, isn't it? It's fascinating, isn't it?
2: Yeah. I mean, God had God exists in that enough people... Believe in him or her that, therefore, he exists. Like, so that's a, is that what he means? I don't, yeah, it's such. a, it's a I don't remember going. I don't remember thinking. I mean, I love that
0: book. I don't remember closing but going, well that's, "Well, that's that's that proven." <laughs> Proof is such a strong. Okay, I mean, maybe. I guess.
2: Yeah, is the boy vegetarian in the in the film? I think so. Yeah, I think so. He has. He struggles with uh, carnivores. Yeah. Have you always been vegetarian? You're full vegan these days, aren't
0: you? I am. I went no. I went vegetarian when I was twelve. I read something about about the process of you know uh, slaughterhouses and stuff like that. And then I came home from school. I I I don't know where I read this, book. somebody lent it to me or something, little booklet thing. And I told my mum I never wanted to eat meat again. And so I didn't until I did fall off the wagon a bit at uni and ate a bit of meat then. But then I just didn't feel happy doing it, so I switched back. And then. Maybe about eight years ago, I decided to go full prick and go vegan.
2: <laughs> vegan. Well, no, good for you. I mean, I haven't eaten meat since I was at university. But I did I did work on a TV show about 10 years ago, and one of the actors said he was a vegan. And, you know, there have always been vegans dotted around, but really just yeah. dotted around. It hadn't really become a kind of trendy movement yeah, in the way it has in recent years. But he said he was a vegan, and that meant that the cater- people on the catering truck had to produce just for him every day a vegan, a vegan meal. Yeah, and I would sometimes share that in his vegan food because it was delicious. And yeah. anyway, I thought perhaps he was putting putting them to a bit of trouble, but they seemed all right about it. And then we uh, we all went out one night, the cast, and got pretty pissed. And uh, he ordered a uh, pepperoni pizza. So <laughs> <laughs> I I thought at that point he should have penned a letter of apology and stuck it on the catering truck. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know Eddie Peppertone? Yes. Well, I don't know
0: him, but I know, you know, great comedians. Yeah. So I, I he's <laughs> unbelievable, right? But I did a radio thing with him in Edinburgh. You know, when you, the the BBC tent or whatever they were doing, they're, they're doing these rotating shows where they, where they interview different comedians. And I was on with Eddie mm-hmm. and we were just chatting and it came up that I was vegan. And then Eddie goes, oh, I'm vegan. And I was like, oh, cool. And then we just started talking about uh, various vegan spots in Edinburgh. And then a few nights later, I was just walking through uh, the courtyard, Pleasant's Courtyard in Edinburgh, and I saw Eddie, and he was eating a, a pulled pork bap. <laughs> and I, I went up to him, not to, with any intention of sort of questioning his. I was just wanting to go and say hello to him because I love him. You know, I think he's brilliant. So I went up to him and I just started chatting to him, and he's just talking, and then he said, uh, oh, God. He goes, yeah. I, he goes, "He just suddenly realised, and he goes, oh, yeah, of course, uh, I'm eating this BAP, aren't I? And we were talking about being vegan, and I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "It's just I was really hungry." I was
2: like, <laughs> <laughs> That's not good enough, Eddie.
0: <laughs> like, All right, cool. No, I get it. So you're vegan unless you're really hungry. All right, cool.
2: But also, you don't. Why give yourself a label if, like, if you basically you've got you're holding many of the principles, but sometimes you fall off the wagon. Just don't talk about it. Because, I promise you,
0: no one gives a shit. No, absolutely nobody gives a shit. Just so I quite like vegan food. I have it sometimes when I'm not eating pulled pork.
2: People say to me, are you a pescatarian? So what are you talking, what is that? That, isn't even a- that, is-, that is not even a word that is- has existed in my life. Yeah, sometimes I eat seafood because I feel like they have no idea what's going on. They don't feel anything. What does it matter? I don't eat lobsters because look- lobsters really look like if you if they could, they would... Not only talk to you, but be cleverer than you are. <laughs> but animals, so There's absolutely no need. Let them go in the field. There's no need for it. I can't. Yeah. And now my kids, because my wife's a full carnivore, and we we're raising three carnivores, and they now think vegan equals disgusting. Well, almost like it's an anagram of right, right, right. Oh, it's vegan. So Rice Krispies are vegan. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. Rice Krispies are nice. <laughs> how long have you and Lisa been together
0: 11 years 11 12 years
2: so she had you started to do a bit of stand-up when you met or did that come after you
0: no it came it was it was maybe six months after we got together I decided to start doing stand-up because I've always wanted to, to do it um and then I just started doing gigs a little bit after we'd got together and then Lisa was coming to a lot of the gigs you know all the open mic gigs she was coming to and then she stopped coming because, because we had a kid and it was getting more and more difficult to come to those gigs. And then a while later, she came to a, 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 a paid gig I was doing. She seemed so astounded that I'd managed to, to be playing a proper club because she'd seen me just doing so many shit gigs. And I remember like walking into the venue and she's like, oh my God, are you doing, you're doing places like this now? I was like, yeah, I carried on. <laughs>
2: Carried on you. Because then once you have the children at home, yeah, this had a little bit with Katie and I, then you have almost, a, you're running two separate lives and you're going in and out of the home life. Yeah. But you're running Ramesh Ranganathan's life alongside. Katie and I met in 2005 and I wasn't doing stand-up at the time. Right. And I got back to stand-up in 2011 and I was trying to get a show together. we just had our second child. And I was chatting to her a bit about one of the ideas I had and she looked at me and said, well, how's that going to be funny? I <laughs> and, and really, how much it got to me because I can remember it so well nine yeah. years later. And then uh, we went to Australia and I took her and her parents and our two very small children and put them in a rented house in Melbourne for six or seven weeks. Yeah. Our oldest child, who, was only, who turned two on that trip, had such a bad chest infection, she was on antibiotics for about a month. I also got a chest infection. Kate's parents were bored out of their minds. Uh, But I was going – we were doing a QI tour and a stand-up tour. I did 33 shows in those six weeks. I was all over Australia. I went all around Australia twice. Yeah. To admit, for me, it was one of the great experiences of my working life because it was (laughs) returning to stand-up, playing theatres, selling loads of tickets. Couldn't believe I I hadn't done it for 10 years. It was the great love of my life, stand-up comedy, and I'd gone back to it. And I'd come home and there would just be these exhausted, homesick people. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's afterwards I felt, was I selfish to bring them? I thought it would be great. And, yeah. But I do remember she came to see, She managed to, we managed to sort of wrangle the kids enough, the two little ones enough, that she was able to come to the Athenaeum in Melbourne and see me do a show and uh, and say, rather than that, uh, it's what brought it to mind, was what you said about Lisa. So I just had no idea that you could get from where we were in the kitchen to that. Because the show by then was a full-length show and it was going really well. Yeah. She says, How do you do it? I said, I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea at all. I just, because there's no, it's not, I don't know how you prepare your material, and your stories and so on. Mine are in my head from memory, they're not scripted. Yeah. And they kind of form as you perform them and become and form. Eventually they become fully formed and finished really. I don't, I don't know if that's your experience.
0: That's exactly, that's almost exactly the same as me. Yeah. I, I I find it slightly worrying actually, because it almost feels accidental. And so I, I sort of start thinking to myself, well, this can't, I can't keep relying on this process just happening. You know, this is like, a, I've got a tour coming up and I've got a hope that this all sort of coalesces into something. But I remember, I remember like Lisa, so, so is exactly what you're saying. The same thing happened with Lisa. But I remember one in, one time in particular, the op- the opposite of her being impressed actually, which is I was doing two previews for my first ever Edinburgh show, and at that time I, I don't bother with all of this sort of time. Tar- you know, I don't bother with kind of. At the time that I started doing Edinburgh, there was a lot of kind of having an emotional ending at the end of your show and, you know, bringing it all together. In oh, yeah.
2: Instead of leave them laughing, it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Leave them crying.
0: Yeah, exactly. It was that. And I remember like, so that was when my first Edinburgh, I, and I, fe- I think I felt the pressure of that. And so I remember li- like Lisa saying to me, I, I'd, I had a load of gigs and I was like knackered and I had to do loads of driving. So Lisa said to me, look, I'm going to drive you to these gigs. I want to come and watch what the show, how the show's coming together anyway. So I was like, okay, great. So I, I was doing like two previews the same night. So she drove me to the first one and I I did the show, came out got into the car and she was quite quiet in a worrying way, I thought, because you're expecting sort of some sort of, you know, God, that was so good. I can't believe how good that was. And I said, uh, I said, what did you think? She goes, it's really good. She said, that ending that you did, I said, yeah, it's, it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. I said, you can't. <laughs> She goes, you can't. She goes, it's just not you. You cannot do that again.
2: And was she right? Did you change it?
0: I changed it. In, I changed it on the way to the next vent, on the way to the next preview, because I didn't feel. You know when somebody confirms something that you're already that you already suspect. Yeah. So she said that, and as soon as she said that, I knew that I had to bid it and and go for the. You know, I just thought I'm just going to go for a big routine and leave them laughing. Yeah. And 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 stand or fall by that because it was just it was. Just, it was my only attempt at doing something vaguely kind of, you know. And when you think about it, yeah,
2: yeah, with an emotional content,
0: isn't that where the real comedy is? Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, it's got to be real. It's got to be the truth. <laughs> I remember going to Canada and doing fringe festivals in my early twenties. Yeah, and I and I got a I managed to get myself a gig comparing a comedy club there, and I was terrible. But I mean, and the comedian said to me, one of the comedians said to me, "Open with your second best line." Finish with your best line, yeah. And I and I and then he walked away, and I and I thought I haven't got any lines. I mean, I really haven't got <laughs> no lines. I kind of mumble on, I waffle yeah. about. <laughs> I'm never going to make it. <laughs> but then I remember doing. I did a tour, and then I was going to do a second tour, and I was doing a big, quite a big gig down in Bristol in one of those big tents. You know, those. Yeah. Um, and uh, Josh come comes on. I hadn't met Josh or worked with Josh before. And he did a set. Uh, I mean, you know, he's an absolutely brilliant stand-up comedian. But yeah. some people might be critical of him, as they once were of me, for just talking about the everyday. Yeah. But until you've seen Josh talking about cash machines, you don't really <laughs> no, realise how funny the everyday can be. It's a know? proper art, yeah. It's so brilliant. And um, and I've been talking to Katie on the phone, saying I've got this new stuff, but I don't know if I should do it or not. It's really quite a big gig. There's some really good younger comedians on. I don't want to be like the old tired old farts. <laughs> You know, the classic, you play yeah. this town twice, once on the way up, once on the way down. Yeah. <laughs> Ian McPherson's show, it's good to be back. And she said, do the new stuff. Just do the new stuff. And I did, and I wasn't formed. It wasn't ready, but I wouldn't have done it, and I did it. Yeah. And uh, so by that point, she, rather as you were saying with Lisa, she had clocked that you could totally do that. I've seen you do this. I know you could do this.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Do that. Why? Well, don't go through the old crap again. Do the new stuff. And that was the basis
0: of a new film. I have exactly the same thing when you turn up to a gig and you go there with the intention of trying out new material. Then somebody before you absolutely rips it, and then you think, "Oh fuck it now! I've got some stuff I've like formulated in the last two days. Do I want to do this? They're going to definitely think I'm the worst act on if I do this." And but the thing is it's always the wrong decision to go and do the stuff the you know your bankers or whatever because you know that is a that is basically just an ego it's an ego thing you know you don't learn anything from that you sort of come out just feeling Yeah it's
2: also a safe it's a safe choice isn't it, it is, yeah, the yeah. truth yeah. of it is i mean if you could the best moment of stand-up comedy is the moment when the idea is there and it's nearly happening, Yeah. like the engine's, the engine's nearly turning over when you turn the key, Yeah. <laughs> and then it starts to fire and you know you're in the middle of something that's going to become a routine before it's fully formed, Yeah. when it's new, that is the best time. Oh, it's but I do remember when I came back to stand-up and I, and I was asked to do the big gig for uh, the Teenage Cancer Trust at the Albert Hall. Yeah. And uh, have you done one of those ones? I
0: have done, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: and I mean, that is a massive gig, right? That is a, yeah. that is a real honour to be on stage at the Abbott Hall for a start. Yes. And they get very strong acts on. And I was, I'd said yes to it, and then I was crapping myself. I hadn't right. done gigs for years. Yeah. I had a sort of half-baked new stuff, and I was waiting to go on. I'd been to the toilet three times. I was the only person who asked for a dressing room, and it was because I was so nervous. And Jimmy Carr was on before me. And he's as you know, is a joke merchant. He'll say about 34 words, and then the whole place will piss themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And how he does it, I have no idea. Completely not my approach. Everything's written. Everything's scripted. 34 words, atom bomb. Yeah. Like a hand grenade. And the laughs were going off like, like someone's firing a shotgun. It's like he's reloading and then firing another shotgun. Yeah. And I was standing there sh- literally shaking, and Stu Francis came up behind me. There are other brilliant Canadian comedians. And he he goes, in my ear, he goes, I need to be following this guy. (laughs) (laughs) And I look around and the look on his face is just glee that he'd really put the wind at me. But he knew that actually what that did was it sort of relaxed me, actually. And I I went on. I had a bit of a wobbly start, but I finished quite well. I got out of it. The nerves and anxiety, sometimes you can wander on without any nerves at all, and sometimes you can be terrified, right?
0: I know, I know. It's so mad. (laughs) I've sometimes had gigs where I've been so nervous that it doesn't even matter if it's going well. I've just completely lost it. You know, like you've got that inner voice kind of the whole way through the gig, just going, this isn't, you're about to lose them. You're going to, this is going, oh, oh God. Okay, that went all right. But you've got, you've got to try and, you know, I've had that sometimes and that is the absolute worst. But um, it's so weird. It's so unpredictable whether you're going to feel nervous or not. It's so, I remember doing a gig in New Zealand at the, at the New Zealand gala, the comedy gala thing. And, and, and I was watching backstage and everybody was having quite a tough gig. And um, I walked on and I, and I just arrived in New Zealand like that morning I was like really tired and um, I walked on and uh, I said hello and it was such a muted uh, hello back that I actually kind of lost my temper with them with the audience and sort of spent the first minute just sort of bollocking them for like going like, do you know how fucking far I've come to do this <laughs> yeah. just come on and say hello and get that and and it and it was actually I think in hindsight it's probably the best th- thing I could have done. Do you know what I mean? Rather than just sort of falling into the stuff, is actually it sort of brought me into the gig a bit more. But it's I, I think it's that unpredictability of it that makes it so addictive. You know, you just every time you think you might have mastered it, the comedy gods will just give you a death just to go. You haven't, mate. You haven't.
3: <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juviderm.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com.
2: Let's move on to, uh, we ask our guests to come up with an event in their life. And this can be, quite often it could be a gig or a sporting event or something. Uh, and you've picked three for us, so we'll, we'll we'll get through them in a quick time perhaps. But let's, uh, if you don't mind, I'll come to the your com- the comedy gig you've chosen. Well, this
0: gig was, it was in this, uh, it was above this pub in London. Basically, I'd, I'd just started doing stand-up. I'd been going maybe about a year or something. At that time, you sort of, you get, you, you get agents or you're thinking about getting representation maybe and, and agents will see you at gigs and they start asking you to, to they, they'll come and watch you at gig. And at that time, off the curb and invited me, who are my agents now, but they'd, they'd asked me to go and do this gig of theirs and do 10 minutes just to see. I don't think they'd seen me before. So I, I, went, to, I, w- I, t- I went up to this gig in London and I was on like early on. And at that time, you know, I, I'd been be doing gigs at whatever level I'd been doing them at, and I'd been going well, and I was feeling really good about how it was going and stuff. And I went and did my set, and I felt like I'd done well. You know, I sort of came off as really really pleased with myself. I'd got last where I wanted them, and, oh, this is, isn't this good? And then the closer that night was a guy called Mike Wilmot, who is a Canadian comic, <laughs> who came on, and he did a very dirty set that night, as he as he kind of tends to, Mike.
2: Mike is quite filthy, isn't he? For those who don't know Mike Wilmer, Yeah, he kind of got a voice. It's yeah. really... He's, even, yeah. he's about an octave below Eddie Peppertone. Okay? Yeah, he is, absolutely, yeah. It's quite filthy. You think he might be a bit perverted sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah, he does give that vibe across, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, so he did this filthy set, but it was <laughs> like he was playing a completely different room. To, like, he blew the roof off it was in like I was doubled over as were the whole it was incredible you, you wanted him to stop talking so that you could catch your breath it was an incredible set amazing and I watched it and as soon as he finished he he stopped and he walked to the back of the room and he just went off as if nothing had just happened I I'd just seen a gig that was better than anything I'd seen in ages and anything, certainly miles better than any performance I'd ever done, you know, so much beyond the realms of what I could even imagine doing. And he just walked off like it was just part of the everyday. I just found it absolutely incredible And it was a real eye opener for me because I thought to myself, well, look, if you really want to do this for a job, if you want to make this your thing, you've got to get so much better than you are. And, and, and and it was a fact that if, if that had been me, I would have hung out at that bar all night talking to as many people as I possibly could have done and gone. Oh yeah, that was me that did that. Yeah. Well, absolutely smashed the ass out of the, yeah, yeah, that was me. Yeah, that was me. But he was just like so every day about it. It was such a learning experience for me watching him, you know, and and then I've, gigged with, I've, been, I've been lucky enough to gig with him many times since. And he's always been brilliant. But it's just, he is one of those guys. And I would put you in this bracket as well. One of these guys that is just supposed to be a stand-up, you know. It's in them, you know.
2: He's a terrific comedian. I remember gigging with him. And I was it was around that same time we talked talking about earlier, but I was going back to stand-up after 10 years. And I was going to go on a new material night, try some new stuff. And he's standing next to me. And they're best about to introduce me and he and he goes to me, Hey. And I looked around and he goes, Enjoy yourself up there. And uh and he'd obviously clocked something in my general demeanour that told yeah. him I was I was too anxious and I was likely to cock it up. Yeah. And that will not get anything out of the gig or something. It just and I, I I honestly I promise you this is the truth. I had that in my head for I toured them for about four years, two shows, round round Australia, in around, around the UK, other countries, round again. A lot of air miles, a lot of gigs. And so many times I had Mike Wilmot's voice in my head before I went on. Hey, enjoy yourself. It was fantastic advice. It's
0: incredible advice. And I just think that is if you you can have that at the forefront of your mind, you're going to have an infinitely better gig. I, I really do believe that. What great advice. It's brilliant.
2: It is going by In some ways, you know, every time you go out the front door of your house into the world, yeah. if, just before you open the door, Mike Wilmot said, hey, enjoy yourself. <laughs> you know? But that's a fantastic memory, and I certainly have for that. I identify with that, with being a young comedian, thinking you've slightly cracked it, and then seeing someone absolutely raise a room to the floor. And thinking, yeah. Holy smoke. Yeah. Um, a Wonderful memory. Let's move on to your... Another great event we went to, a very different one. This one took place at the Albert Hall.
0: Yeah, well, it was. It was. I went to see um, Kano at the Royal Albert Hall. Kano is one of, I think, you know, it's fairly commonly accepted that he's one of the the best grime artists ever. Um, and he was. He'd been booked. He he booked to do the Royal Albert Hall one of his tour shows, and it was obviously a big deal. To, to be seeing a grime artist in that venue uh, with the history that has got, obviously.
2: Yeah. And let me talk, Before we go on to talk about Kano, um, I could tell you that I didn't know Kano until I got your list of right. people. So I was able to go and have a look for him online. And, right. and he's a thoroughly impressive individual. It's a, he's now in his 30s, but he started out young in, in the East End, rapping and starting the... And the, and the grime scene really emerged... At, with him didn't it and his, yeah, his, yeah his contemporaries
0: yeah he was he was of the generation when he first came out it was his kind of generation that that brought grime to the fore and he was he had a lot of cross he had a lot of big hits um early on and then you know wanted to take a break from it wanted to work on his art and stuff and one of the things that sort of stands out about kano is is that particularly i think with 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 hip-hop and grime and and sort of urban music in general, one of the things is, is, is that there's so much of it coming out all the time that there's, you know, we, we, we consume music in a bit more of a disposable way. And, and, and Kano is very much kicking against that. You know, he works... He wants his albums to be timeless. He doesn't. He, he's not bringing out an album to be hot for a couple of months and then he goes off. He, he wants his albums to be timeless, and and I think his body of work is so much better as a result of that. But I remember reading interviews in the run up to the gig at the Royal Albert Hall, and he obviously was a massive deal to him, as you would expect it to be. One of the things was he said the mistake that that I I could make here is conform what I do to the venue. He said what we've got to do is conform the venue to what we do, and he had. A full band, horn section, choir—you know—he went all out. There's a song that he he did, that one of his first singles ever, called "P's and Q's." He had the full horn section doing the backing to that song, and we were up quite high up in the in, in the venue. And when that song started, the whole crowd went crazy, and the venue, the room, felt like it was shaking. And I just thought, I can—I'm seeing the Royal Albert Hall rocking to Grime. It felt. In, like it felt like a proper moment it was one of the best gigs I've, I've ever been to it was amazing and it was a, it was a real mix of people because there were people that were drawn to the spectacle of of sort of seeing Kano at the Royal Albert Hall but they're also proper you know hardcore grime aficionados and you know that Kano has performed with you know done songs with like people like Gigs and and Gets and and other people like that who who were heroes of grime and the crowd recognized them instantly you know it was the noise throughout the whole gig was so massive and then a couple of days later I was doing I do this other this hip-hop podcast and I was talking to uh somebody that worked for a record label and he said he saw Kano the next day and he said that Kano had the energy of him of somebody that knew that something incredible had happened the, the previous night like you know it felt like he was sort of Coming down from an amazing career high, it was it was an unbelievable gig, and it was just amazing to see. And, and then I went to see him a few months later, and it was great again. But that was you know perfect storm of you know the gig of his life. It was it was an amazing thing to be part of.
2: That's a fantastic story. I'm reminded a little bit. I worked with Lolly Adefope on on yeah. a band, and when we were shooting down one day, she came in one morning. Looking a little bit starry eyed, like something had happened, and uh, and she'd been to see a huge gig. I think it was in Brixton that Stormzy did. Right, just yeah. at the moment when Stormzy tipped over into being huge, you know. Yeah. And she said the experience was incredible. Yeah. Because not only suddenly a lot of people have turned up in one place, but also the person on stage knows something important's happening. Feels amazing that the thing that they've been doing for years has been recognised. And it's exploded in this way. Yeah. And did, I did feel the way she was talking, rather like the way you're talking about this gig, that, oh, that would have been a good one to go to.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of times when the song would finish and he would, he generally looked overawed by the whole thing. You know, it was, yeah, it was amazing. It was an amazing thing to say. Yeah.
2: Did you feel, I know you love hip hop. It's one of the great, the great love of your life, apart from comedy. Do you feel... A second-generation immigrant, do you understand some of what motivates and drives some of the lyrics and the spirit of grime and hip-hop? Um, I, think, I, I
0: think some of it, certainly. I mean, I, I, the truth is, when I first got into hip-hop, it was through Public Enemy. I remember really feeling the sort of um, identity politics of it, of of, of being somewhere else and, and 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 experiencing racism and stuff. I really did relate to it with Public Enemy. I mean, obviously, there's loads of stuff that's talked about that is completely different to my experiences, you know. But there were elements of it. I definitely think I kind of I kind of teed into. I remember I remember being at school and you do expe- I did experience racism at school, and so and also there's this sort of duality of of sort of being at home. And you sort of being an Asian kid, and then you're you're carrying that into trying to fit in with your white mates or whatever. It's it's uh, that that whole kind of feeling a little bit that you don't fit. I guess it's you know I I, I think it's got better. I certainly when I look at how my kids are, I, I you know obviously they're they've not got the same cultural differences because from the way they've been brought up, but like, I think that. It feels like it's, they're having a better experience than I did probably. But definitely when I listen to that, there is there are elements of it that I do connect with and do relate to. I definitely think that's part of it, yeah.
2: Yeah, part of the appeal and the attraction. Yeah. Uh let's take your next choice as an event. Um we've gone from gone from Kano to Carnu.
0: Yeah, just change just one just change of one letter.
2: Just, just one vowel. Uh
0: it's the, the game in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, where Chelsea uh, were were two 0 up against Arsenal at Stamford Bridge with fifteen minutes to go. Now, Carno, K- I mean, I, I'm, I'm obviously Alan. You don't need me to tell you this, but Carno, His style of play is just. I, I loved it so much that just the sort of he was obviously f- so in control of what he was doing is something magical about the fact that he made everything look almost accidental what he was doing it was absolutely incredible I loved everything about him
2: he was an extraordinary man wasn't he for those of you not familiar with Kanu he's Nigerian footballer yeah uh, he's six foot five I think he had size 15 feet he really wouldn't have been out of place in the NBA but he was so Balanced and graceful and skillful. Yeah, it was. It was almost bizarre to watch.
0: Yeah, it, it just didn't look. It it looked like it was. He was defying physics almost. You know, it was just so incredible. It, it just yeah. He, I, I loved watching him and I loved everything about his style of play. And he he just looked so relaxed. And he was like, it was almost like he was moving at a, a different on a different time time level to everybody else. But Chelsea were two 0 up. Uh, there were fifteen minutes to go and. In Within 15 minutes, Kanu scored a hat-trick for us to win the game. The, the last goal of which is one of the most spectacular goals you'll ever have the pleasure to see. I mean, it was just <laughs> incredible. The first two goals are great. You know, I remember the, the first, I think, I think the first two goals were, from, I think Mark Overmars uh, had a part to play in the first two. And then Kanu is all Kanu at the end. He sort of plays it out to the left or he gets, he gets played out to him Ed de Hoy, who's in goal, for some reason, runs towards Karnu. Maybe, I don't know why, sort of comes out towards him.
2: Well, I think I think and he goes towards him because at this point, Karnu is really right down on the byline, on the touchline. Yeah, he is, yeah. I, mean, the, he's, I think he's, the goalkeeper's thinking, this: I can get this ball out of play. Yeah. He's got nowhere to go.
0: Yeah. And so <laughs> Karnu beats him, sort of takes the ball past him. And then rather than finding a sort of an angle that most humans would look for, just sort of shoots from... Just this, I mean, it kind of, had, it kind of, almost nothing to aim at. Just almost level with the front of the goal, and manages to, and manages to score. It was incredible.
2: Over Mars, this is Shuka. Oh, Kanu didn't want it there. it. Well, it's broken the Kano's way, and Dahui's right out of the centre. It's Kanu, What's he going to do? Oh, can you believe it? He's flattened Chelsea. He's hit a hat-trick at Stamford Bridge. It was incredible. He, he takes on the goalkeeper. You'd expect him to go away from the byline and back into the pitch. Instead of that, he goes... To,
0: to give himself an angle, yeah.
2: He had about 18 inches of room to get between the goalkeeper and the byline. And then on the, on the goal line were Leboeuf and Desailly, who the year before had been the centre-back partnership when France won the World Cup. They know a bit about defending. I was at that game, and I can tell you, standing with the Arsenal supporters, Chelsea two up. Arsenal were beating them every year at that time. This is before Roman Abramovich. Yeah, this is this for them was going to be a great win, and they substituted a couple of people. I think Viali was involved, and there was a lot of high fiving and back slapping on the bench and celebration. This we've got, we've done it, we've beaten Arsenal, and then Carnu just took it away from them.
0: Yeah, and it was just. I don't know, it was an incredible hat-trick. It's a fact it was Carnot. It's everything that's amazing about football, you know, that kind of, the joy of winning that game in those circumstances almost makes the misery of watching your team be down worth it because you just, I mean, it, it definitely does. You just, the elation is so incredible that if you could bottle that and give that to people and go, this is why I love football, that's it. You know, it's it's so It was absolutely amazing. It's incredible. And what made it perfect was just, I I love... Carne was like one of my... He's one of my favourite, all-time favourite Arsenal players. It was an incredible afternoon. It was amazing.
2: It was magnificent. And I do remember later that same season, or anyway, the next time we played Chelsea at Arsenal, uh, was came on as a substitute again and all the Arsenal fans were singing, here comes Karnu again, here comes Karnu again. (laughs) (laughs) It's really... Because that to come off the bench in 15 minutes to go and score a hat-trick and win the game is, yeah. is really the, it's Roy the Rover stuff.
0: It? Yeah, it was, it was amazing.
3: 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP Volunteer and Community Events. That keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does that's why the younger you are the more you need aarp learn more at aarp.org local
2: we'll go on now to um, we ask our guests to come up with a favorite food it might be a meal they've been to it might be a particular cuisine or whatever it is it's something that means something to them what's your choice here
0: so my choice is uh my mum's uh aubergine curry it's actually my mum's cooking in in general but it's my mum's aubergine curry in particular because it's my it's my favorite thing of hers that she makes but um my mum is a great a great cook. Of, I mean, she's a great cook generally. I know a lot of people say this about their mums, but Sri Lankan food in particular is unbelievable. And I grew up, grew up eating Sri Lankan food, love it so much. And my mum, you know, I, I, I don't want to brag about her, but, you know, she is somebody that everybody would ask to, to, to get her cooking. And so my happiest memories are of growing up, having people around our house, enjoying my mum's cooking. My mum and dad would have friends over, my dad would be getting hammered, as per usual. My, we'd all be enjoying the food. My, you know, my parents, friends, kids would be around. You know, like associated with kind of parties. And, you know, so many good memories of eating my mum's food. As the years have gone on, obviously uh, moved out and my mum became concerned that I wasn't getting enough, enough food, and enough Sri Lankan food. And it started to become a bit controversial, actually, because my mum uh, has this habit of uh worrying that I'm not getting enough Sri Lankan food and then dropping off what Lisa and I started calling Asian care packages <laughs> where she'll just sort of rock up and say I oh, was just what you know Romesh I've made this for you and it'd just be like a uh, 12 boxes of <laughs> of of aubergine curry and dal and soya curry and cabbage and all this stuff to go in the freezer and um, yeah, wow, well, wow, wonderful that. oh it's incredible it's incredible for me uh it's incredible to eat what it's not incredible for is the politics of my relationship. Uh, for that, it's <laughs> absolutely dreadful.
2: Uh, uh, yeah, oh, I, I know, I, I hear you. But, but, but really, I'm the aubergine is a controversial vegetable because the aubergine can ruin a meal. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And and I think what makes this meal, what
0: makes my mum's aubergine curry so good, is is when you compare it to the number of of uh, experiences you've had where aubergine has been done poorly. And, yeah, ruined evenings. I mean, aubergine, bad aubergine. And and you, Alan, as a vegetarian will know, we've had to suffer. You'll have had to suffer aubergine absolutely massacred and inserted into meals. Yeah. Unacceptably, so many countless times.
2: Well, we don't often have aubergine in our house. And, in fact, I do remember Katie once wanted to get an aubergine and do an aubergine recipe, and she went to the, uh, the Tesco Express near to where we used to live in Islington and was looking in the vegetable section. And she said to this kid who was working in there, have you got any aubergines? And he looked, he took a brief glance at the vegetable rack and then he turned back to her and said, there's no such thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what what an incredible, what an incredible analysis of the situation. He's looked across, he's looked across, there's nowhere that says aubergine. One or two things could have happened here. Either we don't have any aubergines or this woman's just made them up. I'm gonna go with that one.
2: Go You don't you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> hey, he walks away. walks away. job done. I've just helped a customer. She was looking for something that doesn't exist. Yeah. I've
0: actually I've actually changed that woman's life.
2: <laughs> oh, isn't there? Oh, I thought there
0: was. Thank you for clearing that up. I'm such an idiot.
2: Is this curry? Is it a hot curry? Does she put a lot of chilies in? Is it a lot of garlic and ginger? Is it something that's on the stove in a big pot for hours?
0: So basically, what you have to do to make this aubergine curry, it's it's deeply unhealthy, Alan. Is the truth of it. So so you have to you have to obliterate this aubergine. So what you do is you, you have to de- you have to slice the aubergine and fry it to, to to cook it off to get rid of the bitterness and the, or whatever, soften it up, and then you add some uh, jira seeds and onions and a little bit of curry powder and you you cook that all down. You have to do it for, for quite a long time. A lot of onions and you throw your aubergines in there.
2: Right, down. Gira seeds, they're not chia seeds.
0: Oh. Yeah, I will um I'll send you the recipe Alan. So then you add some curry powder, you add a bit of turmeric and you you cook all that together. Um salt and pepper obviously to taste. But then what you have to add is you have to add my mum's secret spice mix. Right. Now. <laughs> Oh, no. Now, now, this secret <laughs> spice mix.
2: I put it to you that there's no such thing.
0: Yeah, well, my mum my, <laughs> my, my got this. Jar. So basically, a few weeks ago, she said to me, I, 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 I want to show you how to make this, right? So I went round to her house and she showed me how to make it. She's got a jar of these, this combination of spices that she adds to her curries that um, she is, she's told me, she's written down for me. And it's going to give to me at some point when I've deemed myself worthy or something. It's like Thor's hammer, right? But what she keeps doing, what she admitted to me recently, is she keeps telling people, because like, like, people like her aubergine curry or a mutton curry or whatever, they'll ask for the recipe and she'll give them the recipe, but change the ingredients to not, she'll basically leave out her spice mix. Wow. Because she doesn't she doesn't want to one, she doesn't want to divulge that information. And two, she doesn't want theirs to be as good as hers. And then they make it and then they come back to her and they go, It's not quite it's really nice, Sean. It's not quite the same. And she goes, I don't know, maybe it's because I make it with love. I don't know. I I, I, don't know. <laughs> I can't explain it.
2: Oh, so she takes in a way, she then sort of puts them down as well. <laughs> Maybe mine's nicer because I'm a better person than you. Have you thought
0: of that? Maybe it's the compassion. Maybe that's my space. <laughs> yeah. empathy.
2: But even to her children, how many siblings have you got, Roman? I
0: have got one younger brother. Yeah,
2: so has he been given the recipe?
0: No, he's not. He's not. In fact, because my brother is is a carnivore, like proper, he finds my lifestyle abhorrent, and so his favorite his favorite thing that um, my mum makes is mutton curry mutton curry is a big thing in, with Sri Lankan cooking. I do think my mum's been holding back a bit because I think part of the problem is, is I do think she wants us to know how to make it. But there's also the other situation of we then don't need her to have it. Do, do you know what I mean? I can then... Yes,
2: yeah. You can have all her cooking. Yeah. And, and not her.
0: <laughs> and I think that's a big issue. I think that's a big problem. So, I see that.
2: Yeah. Well, I, of all the many uh, wonderful television programmes you've done, You've yet to do a cooking show, and I feel one coming on you. Well, unless, unless you've done a cooking show that I've missed, have you? No, no, no.
0: <laughs> no, well, Thanks a lot, Alan, for your complete lack of support in my mom's cooking <laughs> show. <laughs> but that's not happened yet. I'm sure she'd bloody love it, though.
2: Well, I would love to taste it. If she ever brings some around, if she ever brings around uh, too much... Yeah just uh just dhl me or you
0: know <laughs> the thing is though if i t- if i tell her that you've got any interest in it you'll get a vat of it sent round to your house i mean she's absolutely Fine. delighted to make it for anyone so i'll get some i'll sort some i'll hook you up mate love that
2: well that's wonderful thank you for that choice we'll move on to your favorite memory we ask our uh, guests each time if there's some particular moment that that they return to or that's that stayed with them and uh, it's always interesting to to hear what people say.
0: So, what have you gone with here Amish? Uh Well, I've gone for uh, the one of the first times I took my eldest son over to 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 my parents' place, uh, and, and the reason this memory sticks in my mind is I think Theo was maybe he was a few days old or something. We'd we'd gone round to to see my mum and dad. And I i had a troubled relationship. My dad passed away about eight, nine years ago, but I, I had a, a real troubled relationship with my dad. Part, partly because, well, mainly because, you know, he was um, very like, unfaithful to my mum on numerous occasions. He was seeing a, a, another woman for a long time and um, a, and was looking for a while, I think, to leave us and go and, and, go and set up with this other woman. So obviously that, you know, caused psychologically, you know, the, the relationship was damaged by that. And also the fact that, he had his financial difficulties, he went to prison for a bit. And all of that really caused problems for, for me and him. And I remember having a blazing, I remember once when I was about 17, 18 years old, and my dad and mum had just sort of made up, my dad had just come out of prison, and he'd moved back in with us. And my mum and dad were kind of sorting things out. And I remember I'd come, I'd be, I was being quite inconsiderate as like sort of boys of that age are. I'd come back from being out too late and not telling them where i was going to be and i came in and my dad sort of had a go at me for being inconsiderate and i unleashed upon him a volley of everything i thought about what he'd done and how he'd conducted himself and how, what i thought of him as a dad for the way he would behaved etc cetera, etc cetera. like really sort of went into one and he sat sat there and took it and, and didn't really say anything in response but i remember his face being I mean, it was I, I, that sort of as I sort of say it to you now. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking when I think about how he looked when I I told him all that.
2: Oh, so he didn't really come back at you at that at that point. No,
0: not no, not not at all. He didn't say anything. He he just took it. He just sort of took you know. He, he just sort of accepted it as if it was just.
2: Do you think that you touched some shame in him or some something well, in him that of regret of that he felt? I def, I mean, I do.
0: I didn't think that. I didn't know at the time why. At the time, I just thought he was stunned because I never would have normally spoken to him like that. So you know, he's. I think I, I, at the time I thought he was just stunned by, just shocked by it. But um, I mean, the truth is, is that my mum and dad got really close from then, and you know, they reconciled and, and were really close by the time my dad passed away. And he and I'm I'm a hundred percent sure. You know, he spent the rest of his life trying to make amends for what he'd done. You know, he he was constantly trying to get himself sorted out financially so that he could put my mum into a nice house. Mm-hmm. He was constantly trying to look after us as much as he could. I remember on his 60th birthday, me writing that he was such a great dad in his card and him asking me if I re- you know, repeatedly asking me if I really meant that.
2: Wow. What was he like um, physically? When you were that age, when you, when you really let him have it that time? You- yeah. Were you bigger than him or I'm trying to sort of picture the scene? Yeah,
0: was, I mean, he's quite, a, he's, quite a, he's quite an overweight guy, but he's, he's a little bit shorter. I was bigger than him. Yeah, I was taller than him by that stage. I remember he was sat down. I was stood up. I'd just come mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And so I'd walked into the living room and he'd sort of said something, had a go at me, and then I just like monologued at him, just rage.
2: How long was it? How long was he in prison for?
0: He was in prison for maybe just under two years.
2: During your and that was during your teenage years.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
2: Where was the Where was the prison?
0: So he got arrested in Leicester, and he was in Leicester for a little bit, and then he got moved to uh, Ford Open Prison, mm-hmm. uh, and that's where he spent most of his his sentence. So
2: how How far was that for you to travel if you were going to visit?
0: Maybe hour and a half, something like that to That's that's hard going. I, I, do you know what it was? You, you sort of, as a kid, you accept things, don't you? But but I remember just seeing him in the prison gear was that that was the thing that I found the most upsetting. I think when we used to go and visit him and he would be in, in the clothes, mm. I just used to find that I'd find it horrible, you know. And I, you don't ever get used to that, really. But then when so so then we'd got closer and closer, as and and by the time he passed away, I had an excellent relationship with him and. I, you know, he, he was he was in many ways a great dad. It's, it's just so many, you know. There's obviously lots of issues there. But I remember when um, when I first took Theo around our eldest to to go and see him, my dad was. I've got this picture in my head of being in their living room and my dad picking our, our, our son up,
2: a tiny baby,
0: tiny baby, and give. And he was just he looked so so in love with him. It was just such an incredible. And I just saw my dad as this, like, really loving, beautiful-hearted human being, as he was. But, you know, he had his flaws.
2: Do you think there was a little bit of, whether it's conscious or not, of you seeing yourself in his arms as a baby?
0: I think so, yeah. Yeah, I do definitely think there was some of that. And I I remember, like, suddenly seeing this side of my dad that... And I'm sure it was there when when we were really young. But I remember feeling like I was seeing a side of my dad that I hadn't seen before. He was so so into being around the our kids and i remember you know so he he spent some time with our eldest and he was so constantly wanting to cuddle him just so in love they wanted to see him all the time and then um i remember when we had our second son my dad was seeing his his family in canada his brothers and stuff he's got brothers and stuff in toronto and he was seeing them and then our second son was born and my dad cut his trip short to come back because he wanted to see him wow and sadly like my son was born and our son was born our second son was born in September my dad died in December of that year and so he never met our youngest but um it's just sort of seeing him around the other two it was just an amazing thing but and, and just seeing i guess it was a sort of my dad definitely was like that i mean my mom said that when he when we were kids he was like that as well but obviously i don't remember that and then and then those memories are kind of tarnished by what happened afterwards but it, that Specific, I remember it like a photo. That specific image of him holding holding our eldest it's you know, it, 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 I always go back to that as kind of. In fact, when I think about my dad, that's kind of the image I think of. Really,
2: that's really something to to treasure. That must have been so difficult in your teenage years, for you and your brother to cope with going to school, trying perhaps not a lot of money around, bit of racism in the air the shame of a parent in prison. This must have been, do you remember your teenage years as being difficult? Did you find your escape in music or doing other things or getting away from the family home? What was it?
0: I, I To be honest with you, I became a, I became a bit of an arsehole, is the truth. You know, I, I kind of, I started bunking off school. I was smoking a lot of weed. I was, um, I was like messing around, you know, I was messing around a lot. I was being quite rude to my mum. It was like, it's, you know, I, I guess part of that is um, being a teenager, but also I think that, it was all. It was all going very, very smoothly, and then it got turned upside down in a relatively short time. And so, I guess it sort of it it made it that much more shocking. I think you know. And so, I kind of you know I didn't go hugely off the rails. I was still going to school and stuff, but I was really pissing about. And and I didn't really see the value of school, at, you know, after that because I just sort of felt I just wanted to get through it, you know. And yeah. And also that when things are like that as you know like then home life is not comforting is it it's you're sort of escaping home so i would just be out all the time and just getting up to all sorts really
2: it's not a nice feeling when you don't want to go home no, uh, no i do remember that from my own yeah i own teenage years um but you managed to get past uh the school issue to the extent that you actually became a teacher so that was uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> put, put yourself in school permanently
0: <laughs> i know i know i know and and um Weirdly, I ended up at the school that I went to as a teacher. Which is really? really? Yeah, which is sort of – it's either nice or bleak. I can't figure out which one, really. It's weird. I went back teaching, and, and some of the teachers that taught me were still there as staff
2: members. It was bizarre. That's amazing. Yeah. My sister lives down near Crawley. She lives in Copthorne and, uh Oh, yeah. I, I know that uh, Crawley's – this can be quite a rough town, in rough around the edges. It's, kind of, it's not quite East Grinstead. No. <laughs> <laughs> And i mean how did you avoid working at gatwick airport surely that is the fate of most
0: people well i did for a <laughs> bit i did for a bit i was did working, you? i was working at sunglass up at gatwick <laughs> airport uh for a while yeah so i did that and then I, and then i was working for lsg sky Chefs for a bit doing airline catering costings so i did i did that getting drawn in yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. you can't escape that mate can't
2: escape it Well, that's a wonderful memory of your father. Thank you for sharing that. We'll take you out of the family home in a way into into your great love, which is hip hop. And you've chosen your favorite album for us.
0: Yes. Well, uh, this album is by uh, Common and it's called Like Water for Chocolate. And the reason I picked this album is first of all, Common is part of a, a group of artists who are really, I mean, Common's an incredible, is an incredible artist anyway. I love all of his stuff. He used to be called, he used to be called Common Sense, and then I think for legal reasons had to change it to Common, and and sort of ignored the fact that it, it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense at all to just be called Common. But um, <laughs> that's what he's been for most of his career. And this album, like Water for Chocolate, at that time he got involved with uh, the Roots, who are uh, this band from uh, Philadelphia, who they're Jimmy Fallon's house band now. But Questlove from the Roots uh, is like, incredibly talented, and now this group of this production team called the soul and they all work together on on this album and the reason i love it so much is it's it's a cohesive unit this album is a real you know a a lot of a lot of hip-hop albums are a collection of of disparate songs you know they're they're just some songs that that person's recorded at that time but commons like water for chocolate is a, a sort of um it's a, it's a it's a single piece. It it all fits together. Every track is the tracks are ordered in a specific way. It follows a story. It all ties in together. And on top of that, Common's at the peak of his powers. It's very sort of fella cootie influence, the the production on it and stuff. And it's just, um, it's one of those albums where my wife can't stand hip hop. Uh, She she really, (laughs) she really doesn't like it. And one of her issues with it is that I'm too old to be listening to it. That that an overweight father of three has no business listening to hip hop. But when you listen to Like Water for Chocolate, it's a proper grown up album. And, you know, it, it, I would put that up against, against anything in terms of being a mature piece of music. And so it's one of the, and, and I'll be honest with you, Alan, there are hip-hop records that I listen to that are hugely immature and about selling drugs, and there's lots of <laughs> sort of misogyny in them, and I enjoy them. I, I don't want to give you any impression that I only listen to the highbrow part of the genre. I listen yeah. to all of it. No, fair enough. But this album is, is, uh, is, is proper art. You know, I, re- I really love it.
2: This is the, the kind of hip-hop version of a, of a concept album. Yes, you know,
0: exactly right. In yeah. a way. It came yeah. out
2: around the time that Eminem appeared with the, the, the Slim Shady LP. There's something of that in his work too. So it's about 20 years ago, isn't it?
0: Yes, that's right, yeah.
2: And the title comes from about like, getting water to make hot chocolate, to get water yes. to boiling point, to, to yeah. the idea that the artist's Common is hot and, uh, and um, enraged or ready to go kind of Yes, thing.
0: absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm ready to make chocolate.
2: Also, interestingly, it's got on the cover is a picture of a black woman drinking from a water fountain which says Coloured Only on it. Yeah. And and it, it, this is an artist, isn't it, with a social conscience. His, his lyrics are full of social commentary and, and rage and anger about the... For want of a better term, the Black
0: experience. Yeah, and and he's very eloquent about it, and he's very eloquent about what he feels about hip hop as an art form, but also you know social, you know the social situation for the for, for black people in America. There's also I mean there's there's some uh, some people kind of are annoyed with Common because not annoyed with Common, but there's a you know Common when Common first started out, he was a proper you know straight up. You know, I, I guess, kind of regular rapper, very sort of hard rhymes over beats, etc. And then he's kind of moved into like "Water for Chocolate" was the beginning of him moving into kind of a, I guess, a sort of softer sound. A lot of people sort of take the piss out of him for being kind of hippie-ish. It's one of the the accusations levelled him. In fact, there's a there's a there's a, a, a photo of Common because there's a, there's a theory that Erica Badu softens rappers, and there's a photo. <laughs> of a group of rappers before and after sleeping with Erica Badu. And <laughs> uh if you see Common's Common's before photo he's like got a cap on sort of a, a, a tilt and then in the after photo he's wearing a turban and he's got kind of a, he's got kind of some beads on and stuff like that. And there's like three or four rappers that have undergone the uh the Badu transformation. Um but I think um Common, like I like all of his albums. I really do. I think you know he's. Um, I think the one after that was uh, what was it called? Electric, Electric Flat. Oh, don't let me have a look.
2: I'm looking for the before and after of Erika Badu. Oh yeah,
0: you've got to look this up. It's great. And
2: I've got Erika Badu has come up on my screen here in an outrageous selection of hats. It seems to be <laughs> <laughs> uh, the. Uh, Singer, songwriter, and hip hop artist. You're introducing me to a world of hip hop, which of oh, course, I'm is great. a 54 year old white man from Essex, well. Well, I thought. Do you know
0: what, Alan? I thought it was about. I thought it was your time.
2: You've definitely helped me, and I actually really enjoyed this album. I mean, oh, I did just, you. you know, the, the I'm, I'm, I'm with Lisa. The tone, the sound, the the basis of what hip hop is, the beat doesn't chime with anything that has a good memory for me in my youth it's right, just not right. my it's a sound that i've come to in middle age it's yeah. like a it is a cultural void there's yeah. a different there's a gap there but it's uh, you, you know i would need to be have my hand held and directed towards albums that i would enjoy that could bridge the gap and this is one of those it's a really impressive piece of work
0: yeah, I mean, I, I, Electric Circus was the one that he did after, that. and I I love all of his records. I think that, but this is this is him at the at the peak of his powers, I think, and it's also one of those albums that, um, you know, one of the things with hip hop is it is it moves so quickly that you, you can you can give albums to people and you say this is a classic album of mine that I love, and then they'll put it on, and because they didn't listen to it when it came out, it just sounds compared to where hip hop's gone now, it just sounds dated and a little bit, but. I really do think this is one of those records that stands the test of time. I think you could list... I'd, I'd give that to somebody now and say you'll enjoy this and you don't have to make any concessions to the fact it was made 20 years ago or whatever.
2: He's from Chicago, right? He's yeah. not got any of this East Coast, West Coast competition. There's not yeah. really a gangbanger vibe around him no. at all. Say. He's a prop, is a, he's a musical artist, really.
0: Yeah, well, I think, that, I think that people talk about... You know, you think about NWA... Who came up with straight out of Compton, and that was obviously a, a snapshot of Black America at that time in, the, in in Compton and in the ghettos there. And and then the leg and although that was a great record, the legacy of that is that's what all record labels wanted, is they wanted rappers talking about that kind of thing. And so what happened was is that kind of became, that was what everybody associated hip hop with, and that was what a lot of hip hop, most of hip hop was for a long time. And now, even now that's what people associate hip-hop with. And there are still people that make that kind of music. But there's loads of, I think Common is one of these artists, this group of artists, this movement of artists that were doing something quite different. It was more difficult for them to break through as a result because that wasn't the stuff that people, that record labels wanted particularly. It wasn't the stuff that people were used to hearing. I think it was sort of tougher you know, arguably tougher for that music to get heard or for that music to get an audience. But I think it's better for it, you know. It's, it's so, it's such an interesting, you know, like Slum Village, JD from Slum Village, Slum Village are another group, but JD from Slum Village also worked on the production of this album. It's a completely different type of hip hop. And that type of hip hop is being made now. It's like, it's such a, it's such a, a sprawling genre. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, when my wife thinks of hip hop, she thinks of that kind of gangbang, kind of violent stuff. And that's partly because I do put it on in the car. But, you know, there's also, there's such a wide range of stuff. And she, you know, th- this album is one that she'd like, you know, she likes the roots. All of this type of stuff is is stuff that she's into. So it's kind of nice that there is this area of hip hop that I think is brilliant, that also... She likes as well. So we do play it quite a bit.
2: Yeah. Well, there's, there, let's face it. There's some dubious sexual politics afoot in some hip hop. Absolutely understand. right, yes. <laughs> understand. Lisa. And
0: I want to distance myself from that completely.
2: And then, of course, he uh, then went on, I mean, he's uh, now he's a huge star. Right? Yes. he's A big movie star. Yeah. And uh, co-wrote the Oscar-winning song from the film Selma. So yeah. um, really, the Grammy Awards and all the rest of it um, so, but this is one. This album, Like Water for Chocolate, is really, really one that tipped him into commercial success yes. from in his earlier life. So, it's a great record. It's uh, I would never would have listened to it in my life, <laughs> and so <laughs> I am very grateful. Great uh, for the for the tip, um, Ramesh. Thank you kindly. we we've nearly at The end. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you too, man. I'm sorry to take so much of your time, but no, I, it's it. always a pleasure. And um, we'll just finish up now. We ask our guests if there's a particular place, maybe somewhere they've been to, it might be where they grew up, it might be somewhere they've been to once, just some place in their life that means something to them. And what have you gone with there?
0: Well, in Crawley, where I've spent most of my life, there's a, the shopping centre, a county mall. Behind the county mall, there's the memorial gardens. And this is this sort of little park area behind the mall. And in those memorial gardens are uh, is a bench. Uh, and the other day, I was sat in between lockdowns. I was sat on the bench with my wife and children, and we were eating a f- we were eating some sandwiches in the middle of our shopping thing. And it suddenly occurred to me that I have been on that bench in particular for at so many numerous stages in my life because I've basically grown up I've grown up in Crawley and so I remember my earliest memories of being on that bench were when I was like a kid at school just sort of after school going and sitting there with a few mates hanging around talking about what I could do to try and get my first girlfriend and then a few years later after that going there and as a teenager and that those memorial gardens where you got up to sort of all sorts of uh, I remember like sort of going there to Try marijuana or get drunk or whatever, and then and actually that bench, uh, and then and then when I sort of first got together with Lisa and we had our first first had children, we, we'd always stop off in that park after and shopping. And actually that bench has sort of seen me through. I mean, there's a number of benches, but I always end up going to the same one. Has sort of seen me through all of my stages of life, and I don't know whether that's really cool because this one place seems seems for all my life or it's just a damning indictment of the fact that I cannot seem to escape Crawley I can't I can't figure out <laughs> which one it
2: is do you think you're in Crawley now because your kids are at school there it's your it's your hometown you're ne- you're always going to be there or do you sometimes say why do we live in Notting Hill what's wrong with us I
0: know well I, I, yeah I mean I, I did I remember I, I remember actually when I was about to go to university I remember thinking I need to get the hell out of Crawley and there's something you know there's something cool about leaving and going somewhere else and then
2: where did you go to university
0: i was well i was at i was at kingston and then i went to birkbeck just off tottenham court road
2: did you move out of home
0: yeah i did i did and then i was planning on sort of staying in london i thought i'm going to live in london and then i ended up coming back to crawley um and i've been here ever since really
2: well you'll be pleased to know you'll be pleased to know ramish that uh the memorial gardens in crawley have a a place on TripAdvisor. yeah and uh and they've had reviews and uh, have they? They've had uh, one hundred and thirty-nine reviews in English, uh, two Portuguese, one Italian, and one Russian. Oh,
0: the Russians uh, love it. <laughs> they love the Memorial Garden.
2: Uh, some of the comments are wonderful gardens in the town centre. Good to go and sit during a lunch break or in a, or during a busy shopping trip. And uh, this is my favourite: a lovely urban space in the middle of the hustle and bustle of a busy town centre. Sadly, when I arrived, there was a fair bit of litter around. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a photograph yeah. of uh, a, a really enormous bin. And um, I could see one, two, three benches. There's plenty mm. of benches. Oh, there's loads of benches. And it's, it's got a Traveller's Choice Award 2020. So
0: Yeah, it's, 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 I, I, don't, I can't see myself leaving Crawley, to be honest with you, but I wouldn't recommend it. It's sort of a weird dichotomy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is. <laughs> it's just really, it's really. I imagine the people, if there's anyone from Crawley at you know, the council. <laughs> oh, he's really bigging up Crawley. Oh, no, he's told no one to come here. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Thanks for talking us through that. It is funny how a place. Like, I don't live anywhere near where I grew up, and, mm. uh, and uh, I have my own troubles in my, with my family. Yeah. But. Uh, I do, I can I think of one or two places around Epping Forest is where I grew up, which really take you, transport you back. And it must be interesting to, to see your own children in the parks and places where you played. It's,
0: yeah, it, it is, I, I, it, there is something lovely about being somewhere that I'm so familiar with. I just really find it, I really like it. But sometimes when I bump into somebody that I used to go to school with and they say to me, where are you living now? And I say about eight minutes from where I lived with me last <laughs> week i feel slightly embarrassed
2: well romish runga nathan you have provided your seven pillars um thank you for introducing me to um top the top grime artists the top hip-hop artists <laughs> for re- revisiting back to the future for the promise of your mum's but i well, the thing i will take away is the the memory of your father with his tiny baby grandson and that reconciliation that you had with him um it's a great memory and it's been fantastic to talk to you um thank you for your time
0: thank you alan what a pleasure thanks very much mate